I was reading some current statistics that says about 90% of those who suffer from chronic illnesses, it began with stress that was induced by fear. Before it was a chest pain or a headache, it all began with fear. Most common among these fears is a loss of job or fear of old age or a loss of loved ones. I believe when David was writing this psalm, Psalm 27, he was facing a formidable enemy. Just imagine for a minute, the king of the nation with his military personnel out, leaving the business of government in order to hunt one man. And it would be an understatement to say that David was tempted to fear many a times. Yet what I see in the life of David again and again, a man who's never given up to his fears. It is okay to be tempted to fear and be afraid, and it is another thing to give in to that temptation. So Psalm 27 examines David's experience and summarizes the experience that he was going through of that fear and the trust in God. And we experience how, too, we can be victorious just as David was. And I've divided this psalm into four sections so as to make it easier for us to look into it, study it, examine it. The first section is verses 1 to 3, and there is a warning for us. Secondly, verses 4 to 6 of Psalm 27, it is worshiping. Worshiping God as the secret for David's victory. The third division is walking, that is in the humdrum of life, as he walks in the marketplace, as he goes about his business, experiencing God. Fourthly, waiting upon the Lord, verses 13 and 14. What is the psalmist warning us in verses 1, 2, and 3? He's warning us of this, that if you are a believer who put your trust in Jesus Christ, you do have enemies. If you are a believer who trusting in the power of God to save you, you walk with God, you do have enemies. Israel often had, was attacked by many enemies. The true prophets of God have always aroused oppositions by those nominal Israelites as well as those who hated God. The early church experienced pressure and persecution from the organized religion of the day. And Jesus Himself came with the message of peace. The many times result was war. Read Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and the rest of that chapter. The warning is this. If you are a believer who put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you try somehow to avoid persecution, you will end up doing one of two things. You're either going to end up compromising the truth or hiding your light. Hear me out, please. It is impossible to escape opposition. It is impossible to escape persecution. If you have made your stand for Jesus Christ, it is impossible. But there's one thing we often forget in our spiritual warfare, that the enemies that are made of the flesh and blood kind are really not our enemies. (laughs) They are a front for the real enemy. They are masks where the real enemy really hide. That is Satan. 
And that's why the Apostle Paul affirmed this, that our enemies are not those of the flesh and blood variety, but our real enemies are the forces of darkness, that our real enemies are the spiritual forces of wickedness, that our real enemies are the powers and the principalities. And if you are an alert Christian who walk with God, the devil will find it very hard to draw you out and defeat you. If you're hiding in the rock of ages, he's going to have a hard time doing that. If you are a praying and a praising Christian, Satan is going to have a hard time to directly entice you. If you're a Christian who loves the Word of God and accepts it as the truth and the only truth about God that we have as a revealed in the Scripture, it's going to be hard for him to bring doubt into your life. So what does he do? Here's how he operates. He starts roaming around, finding a place in the heart of someone, a member of your family. He can't work somebody there. He'll find somebody, other believer somewhere. Some of your close friends. A member of the church. Somebody that he's going to find that has an opening in their heart, an opportunity that he can get in, and he uses them to attack you. And he would attack your character, he'll attack your motives, he'll attack your sincerity, he'll misinterpret your actions and your words. But you know what the natural reaction for all Christians when that happens? Is that we react to the individual who attacked us. Our, first of all, we, our heart begins to burn with anger. But it doesn't stop there. Whether it be in a domestic dispute or any dispute. Anger does not remain anger, it becomes bitterness, and bitterness then becomes hatred. And you begin to hate that person, you begin to resent that person, you begin to, in anger, despise that person. And what happens to you? You lose your joy. Your prayer life will become limp. Your praise life will become non-existent. Your spiritual walk will become not real. So you begin to fake it in your spiritual walk with God. You put on a front. They say, what do I do? What we need to do is to go back to where you started. Examine what happened to you because in reality, you are hating the wrong enemy. (laughs) The man or the woman who hurt you, who attacked you, who abused you, are really the bag man for the mafia boss. (laughs) They are really delivering the devil's mail. And you're the recipient of it. To be sure, whether they know it or they don't know, they are being used as a tool of Satan. And when you truly understand this, when you truly comprehend this lesson, I promise you, you will never be able to hate anybody. You won't be able to. Even the very people who have wounded you deeply, even the very people who may have threatened your life, even the very people who hate you so much as these people hated David, they said they will literally want to devour his flesh. You won't hate them back. In fact, you'll begin to be able to love them. And you will pray for them, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You will really pray for them because you know who the enemy, who's the real enemy is. What else is David warning us in these first three verses here? Well, in verse 2, he tells us that the enemy can come suddenly and he attacks. And before you know it, you're down. But then in verse 3, he said he can do something else. He can come and set up camp, and he begins a long siege of oppression, of attack. 
In either cases, David said, they are going to knock their head against the wall. Why? Because my trust is in God. He's the one who's going to protect me. He's the one who's going to put his arm around me. David's enemy was so vicious that they would devour him if they could. But even that, but David said, they're not as big a threat as they may think they are. Why? David spells it out. Because my trust is in God. My confidence comes from my utter dependence on my God. Because He is my salvation, and He is my light, and He is my strength. You notice salvation and light always come together. God, being the symbol of light, is a very important symbol. Very important symbol to understand. The sun, which is the natural light and source of life, is compared with God in Psalm 84, verse 11. No wonder that the ancient Egyptians and many of the pagan world worship the sun because they look at it as the source of light, as the source of life. What they've done, they did not worship the one who put the sun there, but worship the creation instead of the creator. The psalmist David here is saying, God is our light. And He is the one who lightens our minds. Remember, the person without Jesus Christ has a darkened mind. <laughs> I have been watching this debate on abortion. And as I notice the Christians debating with the non-Christian world, or those at least, in my judgment, have darkened mind, or any other subject, not just abortion, any other rationalization or justification of sin, whether it be the, the abomination of homosexuality, whatever it may be, I notice one thing when I see the debate going on. I liken it to two individuals who are standing in a beautiful garden, the sun is shining. The birds are singing with beautiful colors. The trees and the grass is green. And the two standing there debating the beauty. You say, well, what is there to debate the beauty of nature? Well, we have a problem. One of them is blind. One can't see it. The man with their open eyes say, can't you see the beautiful sunshine? The other said, no, all I can see is darkness. Don't you understand that this fetus is a baby? It's a human being. No, no, I can't see it. All I see is darkness. Can't you see the gorgeous trees? No, I can't see the trees. The trees are getting away when I don't have my stick. They will hit me when I, when I walk in the way. And the debate goes on. A blind man and a seeing man. And they're debating what they're seeing. It is impossible. Until the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into their lives and enlightens them, they're not able to see it. It doesn't mean that we must cease debating or presenting the Christian point of view, the biblical view. We must never cease to say, thus says the Lord. I believe the lines are drawn, and now we know exactly who's who. And we don't have to wonder anymore. But we must understand that in our mind's eye, there is a light bulb. And all of us born with these light bulbs turned off. And until you and I come to the Lord Jesus Christ, say, Lord God, I am a sinner born of sin. I cannot save myself. I'm heading for hell and eternity, for eternity. Only through Jesus Christ that I can be saved. I submit to you as my Lord. I receive you as my Savior. You know what happened? Jesus comes at that moment and he turns that light on, that light bulb in your mind, in your mind's eye. And that is why to remember don't be surprised when people don't share your moral conviction. Don't be surprised when people ridicule your moral stance. 
Don't be surprised when people, whether they're inside the organizational church or outside the organizational church, that's beside the point. When they tell you that your morality is old-fashioned and ridicule you. Don't be surprised. Remember that their light has not been turned on. They live in darkness. They can't see what you can see. And that is why it becomes even easier for the devil to use them as tools to oppose us, criticize us, ridicule us. You see, Jesus has not turned the light because they have not turned to him. And you notice I said Jesus is the one who turns the light. Because your good works will not turn the lights on. Your church affiliation is not going to turn the lights on. You being the fifth generation Presbyterian or Methodist or Catholic or Episcopalian is not going to turn the lights on. Only Jesus turns the light on because He is the light of my salvation. You see, light and salvation are synonymous in the Scripture and in the Psalm. It is by grace that we are saved, not by works. Why? Lest any of us would boast. And when the enemy attacks us, God's strength is available to us. He's our stronghold. And the word here describes a fortress. A fortress into which the enemy cannot penetrate. What does God do when His children come to Him when they're under attack and they cry, Lord, help! He shields us. He puts a fortress around us. He protects us. And that was the secret of David's fearless confidence. But David experienced something else here that gave him confidence in the midst of fear. And that's the second point, worshiping God. Verses 4 to 6. David knew that the secret of victory in the battlefield are his knees. When you throw your back, you can't kneel, but God can hear you anyhow. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you don't go out and face the enemy. No. No. But it means that you acknowledge and you know and you understand and you comprehend and you practice worshiping God because that is the secret of your victory. Paul said, one thing I do. Jesus said, Martha, Martha, one thing is needful. And David here in this psalm saying, I know that one thing is, it is worshiping God. It is focusing on God. It is calling upon the power of God. And you can do all the protesting you want to do. You can do all the marching you want to do. You can do all the lobbying you want to do. Unless you learn the secret of spiritual warfare, you are no more of an activist, better activist than the people who are on the other side of evil. We have something they do not understand. We have something they could never comprehend. We have something that they could never have until they turn to Jesus Christ and submit to Him. That is worshiping the Almighty God and falling before Him on our faces. You know, in David's day, there was no temple. You remember God said, because of the blood in your hand, you will not build the temple. Solomon will. And that is why verse 5 is so magnificent. For in the time of trouble, you shall hide me on your pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. You see, in the eastern desert, when you come into a Bedouin, a chief in the Bedouin's tent, you are safer in his tent than in any cave anywhere in the world, than any fortress. Why? Because the resources of your host 
are at your disposal. His military defenses are yours. All of his resources are yours. And because the tabernacle were at a tent at that time, David could say, when I come to your tent, O God, I know I'm protected. I know that I can come and worship you. And I know that you're going to receive me. And I know that you're going to hide me. And I know that you're going to give me strength. You see, David could not enter into the Holy of Holies because he was not a priest. But I want to tell you something, and this is something so many of us take for granted. You and I now made priests by the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have an access to that Holy of Holies. What David longed for is yours, it's mine. And yet we take so little advantage of it. We, we don't even understand it. We don't comprehend it. And we tarry before the Lord but a few minutes and run off into our busy world. The privilege that David longed for is yours and is mine. And if you are being defeated in the battle of life, I promise you it is because you have not learned to go on your knees in the prayer closet. If you want to be a successful spiritual warrior, you better learn how to be a successful worshiper. If you want to ignore His presence, you will not experience His protection. And verse 6 is really a basic truth. When we lift up our eyes and behold the Lord, He will lift up our heads above our enemies. You see, a bowed head is a defeated head. Psalm 3, 3 it said, But thou, O Lord, art the shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. Those who trust the Lord can lift up their heads, not in arrogance, not in pride, but to the glory of God the Father. The victories in the battlefields are won in the prayer closets. Then beginning at verse 7 and the rest of the psalm, you notice there is a change of the atmosphere here. David moves from the tabernacle, from the worshiping of God, into walking. He goes from worshiping to walking. He goes from the mountaintop experience into the valley. Now he is in the humdrum of life. Now he is in the walking day by day because we can't stay on the mountaintop forever. We've got to descend into the valley and share the glory of God with others. It is one thing to see the glory and the beauty of God in the house of worship, and it is something else to be in His presence in your kitchen, in your boardroom, in your business meetings. And the lesson that David teaching us today is that when you are facing those drudgery moments in life, they are just as holy moment to call upon God as you do when you come on Sunday and worship Him. In verse 8, he tells us to be sensitive to the voice of God. And when he speaks, David said, immediately respond to God. Don't be insensitive to the voice of God. Whether you're driving your car or pushing your shopping cart or you're scrubbing the floor, whatever you're doing, whatever your vocation may be, whatever your walk in life may be, as you can walk with God as you do on Sunday worship during the week. And as we walk the path of life, we need direction. We need guidance. And that's exactly the burdens of verses 11 and 12. You notice there, David says, teach me, lead me, deliver me. Why do we seek the guidance of God in everything we do, in every decision we make? Because the enemy is always present. He is ready to trip us up all the time. 
He's ready to get us into an attractive road. He's ready to get us into a treacherous pass. He's ready to get us into a crooked highway. And when we genuinely ask God to lead us, He will get us on a level path. He will get us on a plain field. Why? To the glory of His name, that Jesus may be glorified. Well, David shared with us three experiences. First, warning. He warns us that the enemy is ever-present. Worship, he tells us it is the secret of victory in the spiritual battle. Thirdly, walking in the humdrum of life, he is perfect. It is a perfect place for us to call upon God even then. Fourthly and lastly, waiting. Verses 13 and 14. I have to tell you up front that it is a lot easier for me to preach on the subject of waiting upon the Lord than to do it. Do what I say, not what I do. By nature, I'm an activist. I work hard and I work long and and I I don't like to be kept waiting. I just don't like to keep... I mean, doctor's offices are not my favorite places to be. I am like this older gentleman who was impatient and, and he was kept waiting in the sitting room of a doctor outside and he waited and he waited and finally he got up and said to the nurse, he said, look, he said, he said, I'd just go home and die natural death. In New England, there was an outstanding preacher by the name of Phillips Brooks. On the outside, Dr. Brooks was poised, he was calm, he was serene. But those who are close to him knew how impatient he was. And one day he was pacing the floor like a lion. I mean, he was just pacing the floor. And a friend of his said, Dr. Brooks, what's the trouble? He said, I'll tell you what the trouble is. The trouble is that I'm in a hurry, but God is not. (laughs) And you know, I'm convinced because of my impatience, somehow I end up in the slow line. I mean, whether the airport or shop, it doesn't matter where I go. I'm always in the slow line. And I know the Lord saying, I'm teaching you patience. And I said, Lord, okay, but hurry up. (laughs) There are times when God calls on us to act, and we must act. And we must respond immediately. But there are times when God calls upon us to wait, that He may act on our behalf. God's delay are not God's denial. They are a preparation for the great blessings that He has for us. And in verse 11, David prayed for the will of God. But I want to tell you that the will of God and the timing of God go together. They go simultaneously. To do the right thing at the wrong time is an act of disobedience. And when God says wait, it is because there is yet work for Him to do, either in us or for us or through us, in order to give us the next blessing. And it takes as much courage to wait as to war. As we wait before the Lord in worship, and as we walk with Him daily, He puts His strength in our hearts as we trust Him while we're waiting. From verse 13, it is very clear that trusting God, faith in God will see us through. God will not let us down. The world says, seeing is believing. The Christian says, believing is seeing. In the Christian life, waiting is not necessarily inactivity. Waiting is not necessarily wasting of time. Waiting for the Christian is always a time for preparation for the next battle, for the next blessing. And as we wait, 
we pray. For the wise sailor repairs his sails in the calm weather. The wise soldier regathers strength during the lull in the battle. They that wait on the Lord, said Isaiah, shall renew their strength, shall exchange strength. And the ability to calm our soul and wait before God is the most difficult things in the Christian life. It really is. Our old nature is always in a hurry, is always restless. Our world is running frantically around us. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Even some of our Christian friends look down at us and think that we're backsliding if we're not running from seminar to seminar, from convention to convention, from conference to conference, hearing speaker from speaker to speaker. And have you noticed this? That in the past, however many years, as we increased so many seminars and so many conventions and so many conferences and so many televangelists, that we seem to get away from genuine Holy Spirit revival. Because the Holy Spirit is not going to come and bring a revival to a bunch of activists. He's not going to do it that way. The revival is going to come to America when Christians finally quietly sit before God on their faces to the ground and wait for God. Worship God. Honor God. Seek God. I believe God can help us conquer fear if we learn to worship, walk, and wait. Most difficult of all is waiting. Because a restless heart leads to a reckless life. Because I want to tell you, all religious activities are not necessarily ministry. Did you hear what I said? All religious activities are not necessarily ministry. Some of these activities could be tearing down instead of building up. Psalm 62 verses 5 and 6 said, Find rest all my soul in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org. 